Well, greetings, Applewood family. So, this question for you. Anyone know what the word trifecta means? What's that? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you why you know the answer to that, Doug. <laughs> but he's, he's on track. I was reading earlier this week that it is a fairly recent addition to the English language, the word trifecta. It's a combination of the prefix tri, which means three, of course. The word perfecta is an American Spanish word of origin referring to a horse racing bet in which the first and second place finishers are chosen correctly. Now, according to Merriam-Webster, it first <laughs> appeared in the early 1970s as a term for a horse racing bet in which the first, second, and third place finishers are chosen in the correct order. Now, since the meaning has been broadened, it's often used to refer to, to any group of three things, usually desirable things. For example, the trifecta of curing cancer, ending hunger, putting an end to, to war. It's found in everything from advertisements to media company names to casual speech. It's even found in church life when the pastor is looking for a catchy phrase for his sermon title. Right here, who knew? At Applewood Community Church, we have a trifecta. Now, no worries, no worries. It is a sanctified trifecta. It is, it is far removed from its roots in the, uh, you know, the horse racing and, and betting world. So, for these three remaining Sundays in November, I want us to look at a very short but hopefully familiar text that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I am calling it a trifecta for Christian living. On each Sunday, we're going to look closely at one of the three distinct phrases that we find in this text, and yet they are, they are just intimately related. And as I've been thinking through them this week, I find myself reflecting back on our eight weeks of immerse Bible reading. Many of us just finished that up. We, uh, we read through the first five books of the Old Testament. And again and again, we were reminded of the incredible holiness of God. Holiness in his actions towards the Israelites, calling them to be a people who are holy who are set apart as God is set apart, demonstrating himself set apart from the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, calling this people to be a holy people, a people who were set apart from the other people groups in the land, and they would do that by keeping the law that he gave them. And so many of us slugged through that reading for several weeks together, and I think we all were reminded of how incredibly high and impossible the demands of the law are for one to keep. It is a, it is a standard of perfection that is far too high, and it was far too high for the people of God in the Old Testament. And um, it overwhelmed them. And I think it overwhelms us. We know, thankfully, that 
the perfection of the law is, is satisfied in Jesus, the one that, that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of imperfect people. And so I believe that that truth just kind of adds to the significance of this November trifecta, if I can say it that way. It, uh, it is important. Let me give you a little bit of context before we stand and read this, this brief text together. Paul's first letter, written to the Thessalonians, was written about first century, mid-50s, thereabouts. Best we can date it. You might remember the story in Acts 17 where Luke records the visit of Paul and Silas to Thessalonica. And, and Paul, as was his tradition, uh, being a Jewish and being a rabbi, he went straight to the synagogue and began to preach and teach about Jesus. And Luke records that, that some of the Jews were persuaded by his teaching, as were a large number of who he calls God-fearing Greeks, and he also adds many prominent women. And so Paul went to the synagogue, taught about Jesus, and, and a, a number of people were convinced that, that they needed to be followers of Jesus as well. But it uh, didn't all go so well. Paul and Silas didn't stay long because there was jealousy, Luke tells us, amongst the unbelieving Jews. They gathered a mob together to bring some false accusations against these guys. They said that they were stirring people up and they were telling them to defy Caesar's decree, claiming that there was another king named Jesus. Well, that was certainly true, but the defiance piece was not. Some of the believers in Thessalonica hid Paul and Silas and helped them escape from the city that night. So the gospel had taken hold of the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul's letter the first letter to the Thessalonians, there are two. His first one is where our text is found this morning. It was written years later to encourage them as they faced what appeared to be a a growing persecution. Life had not gotten any easier to be a believer. And of course, we know from history that it was not going to, uh, that by 70 AD, uh, the city of of Jerusalem uh, was, was sacked, the temple was burned, uh, there, was, there was widespread persecution throughout the Roman Empire uh, against the Christians. And so Paul's desire in 1 Thessalonians is to, to encourage these believers who are facing some challenging times. He wants to remind them of the importance of loving one another well uh, and, and having hope in the Lord. And it's in this letter, if you've read 1 Thessalonians, uh, there is quite a bit of space given to talking about the day of the Lord, to stand firm and to wait for the return of Jesus. And so he, he has, he's done some theological stuff to remind them of what they believe and why that's important. And then he comes to the end of his letter, and this is where our text is, where he's just giving them some practical kinds of reminders. Don't forget to do this, and don't forget to do this, and do this, and do this, and And so it's in that context, let's stand and read this morning. And what I'd like you to do is in this text, look for the trifecta. Will you do that? See if you can uh, identify those three things. I'm guessing that they'll probably sound familiar to you uh, as we read through these verses. Here we go. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. 
Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. And that, my friends, is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Go ahead and be seated. And is your response something like, wow, that's impossible stuff. Not unlike the law that we spent the last eight weeks uh, reading through. So, did you hear the trifecta? What was it? Come on. First one? Rejoice always. Second one? Third one? Give thanks in all circumstances. So you have heard that before. I'm so impressed with you. All right. So, final instructions that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians. He will write a second letter, but we don't know that Paul ever visited the, the church at Thessalonica again after that first time. <clears throat> Rachel, can we put that next slide up? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay. Let's talk about this uh, question for a minute. Next one, Rachel. What does Paul mean by those words, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then he, right after that, says, do not quench the Spirit. That's a question for you and your neighbor. Turn to someone or a couple of folks. Talk about this for just a couple of minutes. See what they think. Are you ready? No. <laughs> All right. Somebody want to start us off? Let's talk about it for a minute. What would you hear? <clears throat> What did your neighbor say? Or what did you say to your neighbor? Someone? Wow, is it that hard? More and more of... Okay. Okay. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I know. There's a game later today. and <laughs> Commands. Yeah, it's imperative language. Okay, okay. Seems pretty straightforward. Next, <laughs> Lee. No, no, Lee, we're not dealing with questions. <laughs> it's always one in every crowd. Yes, uh-huh, uh-huh. It is indeed. Quick answer, because I assumed that you all knew the trifecta as well as you did, and that was it. that's what it was referring to. That's why I wanted to add that next line, do not quench the spirit. Go ahead, second question. I think it is. I think it is, actually. 
I don't know that any commentator has taken that perspective on it. Would it be okay if we assume that he's referring to the Spirit of God here? Well, just because if the Spirit isn't the one being referred to, then how is it that we do all these things that he's just mandated us to do? Would that be all right? Okay, we're going to go with that for now. That is true. I don't think that's the text, but it's a good idea. (laughs) Quench. Interesting word. Exactly. Yes, yes, it really is. You know, the the writer of Hebrews makes an interesting comment. I think it's somewhere around the, oh, maybe the fourth chapter, fifth chapter, where he talks about, hearing the voice of the Lord. And if, you, and if today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like you did in the wilderness referencing the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Giving us the idea that <clears throat> when the Spirit is speaking into our lives, the truth of God and, and how we need to live, don't ignore it. And, and don't assume, well, I'll hear that again. That's kind of the... The, the implication that the writer of Hebrews hints at there in, in that text. So, anyone else? Diane, a recipe for? For coping with life. Sure. Or it may be how you endure through the problems even if there is no solution in sight. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Your, some of your translations may actually say, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Jim was drawn to, to that word. It's a word that, that is used uh, in, in other places in, in ancient literature as putting out a fire. In other words, when the Spirit is, is setting something on fire inside of you, when the Spirit is, is blowing on the coals and making things hot and things are starting to flame, don't douse it. Let it burn. Let the Spirit set your spiritual house on fire is the image that Paul has in mind. I think he's referring to to the work of the Spirit, as some of you have referenced, prompting us to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks. It's important for us as the people of God not to forget why the Spirit of God has been given to us. And and I know I've said this before, but it's just one of those things that I think we need to, to remember you know, that the Spirit of God has not been given to us so that, so that we can live lives better that are of our choosing. And, and, I, and I think sometimes we, we need to stop and, and realize, oh, well, that's right. The Spirit of God has been given to us, according to the words of Jesus, that we will be His witnesses According to Paul, the Spirit's been given to us as a guarantee or a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance that is to come. Jesus was concerned that his disciples would go out and, and, and try to do things in the power of the flesh and they would simply muck up everything that had been done up to that point that was any value to the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God has been given to God's people so that they will live lives that point to God. Does that make sense? God doesn't need a better us. God needs an empowered us that died to self and live for him. 
That's, that's the role of the Spirit. Call attention to God, not self. We've spent our whole lives calling attention to ourselves. And so when we make the decision to surrender our lives to Christ and to follow Him as Lord, He is Lord. And so now we give ourselves to calling attention to Him. And the Spirit indwells us, Jesus said, to remind you, to teach you, and and remind you of everything that I have taught you, and to empower us to live lives for Him. So it's the Spirit who gives us strength, I think, to, to, to think correctly, to act in ways that point to Jesus. And I have to say, rejoicing always, praying constantly, and giving thanks in all circumstances will produce a life that points to Jesus because it's just nuts. Who does that? Who does that apart from something supernatural going on in their lives? How are brothers and sisters in Christ in Sutherland Falls, Texas, rejoicing in what has happened in their community? But I'm confident that many of them are. They are finding the strength of God in their lives to be rejoicing in the midst of what is undoubtedly the most horrific thing that has ever happened in their lives. That's that's what the Spirit does. It, It makes no sense from a human perspective. It's simply not normal human behavior. The people of God, indwelled by the Spirit of God, surrendered and attentive to the voice of the Spirit, live abnormal human lives for the glory of God. And so Paul's words, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's, it's kind of the, the justification of those three imperatives, those three commands. And, and it is. It's imperative language, not suggestions, not nice ideas. Uh, now, it's, it's fair to say that, that rejoicing, that praying, that giving thanks do not exhaust the will of God for our lives. I think Paul is zeroing in on something here that, that is sort of at the heart of who we are. You know, the, the idea of, of, of being in Christ is, is important to Paul's thinking because those who are in Christ, he wrote to the Corinthians, have become new creation. They have become new creatures, new people. And so he wants us to understand that rejoicing, praying, giving thanks exemplifies our understanding of what God has done for us. You know, we, we talk about what the will of God is for our lives. And, and there's a lot about the will of God that, that is mysterious. Theologians do a lot with, with the different facets or, or dimensions of God's will. But in terms of, of his moral will, he's clearly revealed what it is that he wants for us as his people. And, and, and this is a, a clear revelation of, of how God wants us to go through our daily lives, being a people who rejoice, always pray constantly, give thanks in all of the circumstances that we find ourselves. It demonstrates, I think, that we get it, that we understand the significance of what God has done for us through his son. He's done something 
outrageous for lost humanity. He has, he has loved lost and broken people more than they could ever imagine being loved. And so we as his people, our response to that, we understand that we are loved now and for all eternity and we want to be a people who grow into our ability to, to rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in every situation. One commentator says this, I like this. He says, these three commands penetrate the innermost recesses of human personality. I thought that was interesting. The spring from which all outward obedience flows. If the source is contaminated, fulfillment of God's will in outward matters is impossible. What he's saying is that if we are not a people who are working at rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks in all of our circumstances, if that's not fundamental to our heart's condition and who we are trying to be in the power of the Spirit every day of our lives, then nothing else is going to work out. He says, the true victories of life are won by Christians who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. One of the things that you will read time and time and time again as we celebrated the International Day of Prayer is believers in other parts of the world who are being persecuted for their faith and suffering unspeakable atrocities. There is a thankfulness and a gratitude that, that flows from them. It doesn't mean that they're perfect doesn't mean that they do that necessarily every time or in every moment, but, but those who work with the persecuted church in the world will tell you that it is trademark of many people who live in countries of great persecution. There is a thankfulness and a gratitude and a rejoicing in the Lord and a desperate dependence upon prayer that characterizes their lives. And so the first command of our trifecta is, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. I wish he'd have said rejoice some of the time. You know, rejoice every other day. You know, do your best to rejoice most of the time. Come on, Paul, rejoice always. I don't like that. Your translation may say be joyful always. It may say be filled with joy. They're all right. Any of those is good. At the root of the word rejoice is the word joy. And joy in the scripture is always linked with the presence of God. You know those words of the psalmist as he praises God. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, that's, it, there's some interesting nuance in the language there that it's, I like to think of it as in the presence of God, there is the best party that you can ever imagine. You know, Father, Son, and Spirit doing whatever it is that God does in community. And it is a place of overwhelming and amazing and just unexplainable joy. The psalmist says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Take the little bit of joy that we might know or experience or understand sometime and just multiply it exponentially. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. 
Joy has its origin. Joy finds its definition in the character and the presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then by implication then, those who are in the presence of God, it just spills over onto them like an overflowing cup. You know, in those images that we have of heaven in Revelation, what do we find? There's no more sadness. There's no more tears. Why is that? Because there's no room for it. The place is just overflowing with joy and gladness because it is fully the presence of the Lord and those who are there are in the presence of God. Complete joy, full joy. The word translated joy is linked to another older word that that carries the idea of of well-being, and it has to do with well-being in difficult circumstances. It's the idea of being provided for and taken care of no matter what I'm facing. It is an inner sense of security. Joy is expressed in, in confidence, in certainty, because it is not tied to circumstances. That is the result of being in the presence of the one who embodies fullness of joy. God is always joyful because he is fully complete in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the command for us to be joy-filled people, that is, be people who are mindful of their position of life, position in life, aware and remembering that, that we lack nothing, What is most important has been secured through the love of God in the actions of His Son on the cross for us. God has taken care of and continues to take care of what is most important. Are you with me? Okay. That is what makes the joy of the follower of Jesus truly unique, I think, and a powerful witness because it shows up in adverse circumstances. When times are tough, and it does so because the indwelling Spirit of God reminds us of who God is and who we are in Him. And He will do it all the time and in every circumstance. He doesn't change. He is there. This is how we can rejoice all the time, how we are joy-filled all the time because we are listening to the certain and and sure reminding voice of the Spirit of God. And oftentimes, that comes to us in prayer, that comes to us aplenty through His Word, that comes to us through one another. Once again, the the pronouns are all plural. Paul is interested in, yeah, this is what an individual needs to do, but, but do this together. Be a people of God who are rejoicing together in the Lord always and in every circumstance, encouraging one another to rejoice always and in in every circumstance. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Some of you may be familiar with this text. In his first letter, he wrote about the hardships that he and some of the other apostles had experienced. He writes this, We've been through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, 
having nothing and yet possessing everything. Always rejoicing, possessing everything. Read this account this week. Um, I had never heard of this person. His name is Bob Record, and he has written a book I'd, I'd like to read. It's called Forged by Fire, How God Shapes Those He Loves. This is an excerpt of what happened to him as he was writing it. Listen to what he says. As I write this book, I'm having to exercise the faith of dealing with the prison of pain. Unexpectedly, I suffered a severe cervical spinal injury. The pain was so excruciating, the hospital staff couldn't even get me into the MRI until they had significantly sedated me. The MRI showed significant damage at three major points in the cervical area. The orthopedic surgeon's assistant told me later, Bob, your neck is a wreck. He said there was hardly any way that I could avoid surgery. I didn't want it, but I couldn't avoid it. Because of the swelling of of injured nerve bundles, the only way I could relieve the pain was use a strong prescribed narcotic and to lie on bags of ice. Sleep, what little there was, came only by sitting in a reclining chair. Approximately 48 hours from the onset of the injury, doctors estimated that I lost about 80% of the strength in my left arm. Three fingers on my left hand totally lost feeling. Even the slightest movements would send pain waves hurtling down my left side and my shoulder. All of this as he's writing this book about being forged in the fire. How God shapes those he loves. He says, to add insult to injury, physicians said I had to step away completely from my work, which I love, and began to wear a neck brace. 24 hours a day for five weeks. About halfway through that experience, I found myself sitting on the screened-in porch behind our home. The day was cold and blustery. But I was committed to being outside just for a change of scenery. Suddenly, a bird landed on the railing and began to sing on that cold, rainy day. I couldn't believe any creature had a reason to sing. I wanted to shoot that bird. (laughs) But he continued to warble, and I had no choice but to listen. The next day found me on the porch again. But this time, the atmosphere was bright, sunny, and warm. And as I sat, being tempted to feel sorry for myself, suddenly the bird, at least it looked like the same one, returned. And he was singing again. Where was that shotgun? Then, he writes, an amazing truth hit me head on. The bird sang in the cold rain as well as the sunny warmth. His song was not altered by outward circumstances, but it was held constant by an internal condition. It was as though God quietly said to me, you've got the same choice, Bob. You will either let external circumstances mold your attitude or your attitude will rise above the external circumstances. You choose. Brothers and sisters, we have a choice. We can choose to obey. And it, and it is. It's, it's a matter of obedience because these are imperatives. They are commands. We can obey and rejoice always. No matter where we find ourselves or, or what we're facing, or we can, we can disobey and call attention to ourselves and feel sorry for us and, and all of the stuff that, that goes with that. And here's the thing. I don't know that that we necessarily arrive at the ability to do this well. 
we, we find ourselves facing something that's really big. I think it's a practice that we want to develop on a daily basis in small ways. You know, <clears throat> when the guy at work says something hurtful again, we rejoice. We rejoice in a God who is with us and present and, and knows our needs. God who loves us and has provided for us in every way. A God who has secured us for this life and for eternity when the friend at school stabs us in the back again. We can rejoice. The Spirit will remind us if we listen of who we are. When those kinds of small, hurtful things, small in comparison to some of the huge things that could happen, we get to practice. We get to build up our, our ability in and our endurance. And just real quickly, let me say just a couple of things about rejoicing. Always rejoicing. As I've said, we can, we can rejoice in who God is. We can rejoice in, in his saving work. There's much to rejoice about in, in who God is and who he's revealed himself to be to us in Christ. What he's done for us, saving us and keeping us. We can rejoice in his character. We can rejoice in his goodness and his faithfulness. You know, and I think it's important for us to remember, and, and this again is a, it's, it's an appeal to our hearts as followers of Jesus. Rejoicing reflects well on God's glory. We can rejoice in difficult things and people will think we're nuts. That's okay. It's not about me anyway. Think I'm nuts. I'm, I'm doing this for my God. We're doing this for our God. You know, John Piper said many times that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And he, he reminds me of, of the story in, in, in this little snippet here. You remember it was uh, Nehemiah who was serving King Artaxerxes in, in Babylon. And one day the king noticed that, that Nehemiah looked down. And um, Nehemiah writes, Previously I had not been depressed in the king's presence. So the king said to me, writes Nehemiah, Why do you appear to be depressed when you are sick, when you aren't sick? What can this be other than sadness of heart? Nehemiah then says, this made me very fearful. Why is that? Because in ancient customs, it was never a good thing to be sad in the presence of a king. Men and women did not dare to be sad in his presence because it reflected badly on the king. The king didn't like that. So Nehemiah says, this caused me great fear. Our rejoicing reflects well on our king. Our confidence in who he is, our, our ability and willingness to trust him. Rejoicing in all things, I think, really messes with the enemy. I love that. I love that. Messes with the enemy. You know, we, we have instances or examples of that when we, when we look at, at Job and just how, how hard the enemy was striving to get Job to reject God. His own wife said, you're an idiot, curse God, die. Job would not. He was, 
He was determined to trust God. He gives and he takes away, no matter, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's rejoicing in God. You know, and, and I think that rejoicing in all things, even though people might think that we're nuts, is ultimately a possibility for great witness. Remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail? The earthquake came and the doors flew open. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Of course he was, because he was going to die anyway for the prisoners escaping. He assumed that they had escaped. Paul called out loudly, Do not harm yourself! We're all here! To which I think, what's wrong with them? You know? God has come along and, and shook open the prison doors. Get out of Dodge, man! Paul and Silas, we're all here! Calling for the lights, the jailer rushes in, fell down trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. And then he brought them outside and asked them, what must I do to be saved? That's an awesome story. They sat in the prison. They sat in the prison rejoicing and, and, and Scripture tells us that they sang hymns to God. And the rest of the prisoners were listening. And so the guard was prompted to ask the question after he had seen the behavior of these peculiar individuals. It is the Christian's hope and joy in the Lord, our rejoicing in him, which can, can attract unbelievers to, to the good news of the gospel. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we respond Several of you noticed that there, there seems to be a link between these three imperatives, these, these three parts of our November trifecta. And uh, they are indeed. I would encourage you to, to, uh, to go back and read through our text and to think often about these three as you go through the course of this week and to know that, that next Sunday as we look at that phrase to pray constantly, pray continuously, pray without ceasing what does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? For it is definitely linked to our ability to, to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances. We'll explore that together next Sunday.